Pathology is the study of cells under a microscope. It is a critical field in healthcare, particularly in cancer diagnosis. However, a significant challenge in pathology is the inconsistency in reports and occasional disagreement between pathologists. This can lead to variations in cancer diagnosis and treatment impacting patient care. To address this critical issue, one such groundbreaking approach is the integration of AI in pathology, which is pioneered by companies like PageAI. PageAI is a company in the field of digital diagnostics. They are using next-generation computational technology, machine learning, and artificial intelligence to revolutionize cancer diagnosis. PageAI's platform and AI applications including the PageAI Prostate Suite and the Page Breast Suite have been instrumental in the pathology field. They provide actionable diagnostic insights that directly affect patient care. With their solutions, they have shown a remarkable 70% reduction in cancer detection errors and a substantial decrease in the time taken for diagnosis. As the first company to receive FDA approval for an AI application in pathology, PageAI has set a new standard in the field. Join me today as we talk to Dr. Moy, the CEO of PageAI. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Moy, for being here today. I really, really appreciate it. I'm very excited to have you. Yeah, thanks so much for the invitation. All right. So can you tell me, like, why do we need AI? AI has been everywhere, but why do we need AI? to aid pathologists and oncologists in making diagnosis of cancer? Well, that's a, that's a big question uh, and a great question, of course, when it comes to innovation in cancer care and cancer diagnostics. I, I think, you know, for us at PAGE, um, we think about the world, you know, like, you know, I, I've, I've spent a lot of time in, in lean manufacturing, right? Or in, uh, you know, Toyota business systems, you know, these sort of things. And, one of the earliest things you, you learn about lean is that you need to push as much information to the front of the process as possible, right? And I think in, in a lot of our healthcare system, I'm sure we'll get into this, um, the challenging thing for clinicians treating cancer patients is you don't have all the information. You really have a little bit of information and you spend a lot of time as a detective trying to get to the bottom of well, what's really the best course of treatment for this patient based on the information that I have? And, and we really believe that artificial intelligence machine learning can very much uh, provide more information to oncologists and to clinicians to treat those cancer patients, but also benefit pathologists in just the overwhelming workload that is now here but that will be coming over the course of the next 20 to 25 years. And so uh, it, it's that combination of things where the technology is available. It provides, we can provide more information for oncologists to better treat these patients using AI. Uh, we can also help and assist pathologists with their day-to-day -day work uh, in ensuring that you know, cancer doesn't get missed, it, it, it happens, that perhaps, um, a Gleason grade eight could be called a Gleason six, and that radically changes the course of treatment for a prostate cancer patient. Uh, a Nottingham score that is, you know, high mitotic counts versus low mitotic counts in, in a breast cancer patient. So these are all things that machine learning and AI can assist with as a tool. 
And, and we really believe that it's, it's time for that transformation of, of the diagnostics, the diagnosis itself at the point of diagnosis, where the most information is gleaned from that slide, from that tumor, uh, and provide that information back to the clinician and the oncologist who's treating that patient. Yeah, I can't agree more. And, and that's why I'm very, very excited about this um, technology because like people, like especially like patients, don't know how uh, we usually uh, grade or score different types of cancer. You mentioned the Gleason yeah. uh, grade and the score. It's, 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 it's a very like old age. So we take a part of the prostate through a needle and then we put it on a slide and then we mm. send it to a pathologist. And that pathologist is a human being, whether they are tired, where they are had a bad day, they had to look through the microscope and counts the number of nuclei or the shape of cells, and then they have to come up with a number. So exactly like you said, the glycine six is not equal to glycine eight. And that's what excites me. We have to come up with a standardized way of labeling different pathology slides. Yeah, I think the, the standardization is really the, the key here. And, you know, well, we'll just treat the U.S. here for a second, right? In the United States, something when the numbers vary, but 70 to 75 percent of all cancer care is done in the community, right? And, mm -hmm. and in, in concordance with that, about 70 to 75 percent of cancer diagnoses are actually made by generalists, right? So they're, they're made by somebody in the community, whether that's at a large reference lab or community hospital, and, and, you know, maybe care is done in the community. And then a lot of times that care is then that patient transfers, you know, maybe to a Carmanos or maybe to I'm at Memorial Sloan Kettering or to an MD Anderson, right? And, and then you get another round of care or something like that. And, and, and that's, you know, the, the inefficiencies involved in all of it are, are really terrible, right? And so we, we believe in the technology exists today that by decentralizing this technology and making it available you know, really that democratization of, of this type of care allows community pathologists to do their jobs in, in a way that a subspecialist would be able to do it, but then perhaps arm that community oncologist with better options and better information. So maybe that patient doesn't have to travel. Maybe that first line of cancer treatment is, is really effective. And there's enough information about biomarkers, about a lot of different things. Uh, that enables that patient to stay in place. And then lastly, and I'm sure we'll get into this too, because I think it's really important that there's information about whether that patient qualifies for clinical trial, right? I mean, we know the exactly. approval for clinical trials in the United States is so low. And I can't remember off the top of my head, at least less than 10%. And, and the, the ability for the oncologist really to challenge is what are the inclusion and exclusion criteria of all the hundreds of trials that are out there uh, for each type of tumor type. So so again, for us, you know, this it's really that standardization. Can we can we get everybody, no matter where you are in the United States, that if you have a biopsy taken, and I won't name a place in the country, but somewhere in the country, <laughs> and, and that biopsy is is sent to a local hospital, and that that local pathologist who is a generalist and sees all different types of cancers, that that AI enables them to to perform at that level. And actually, in our FDA study. Uh, Rupin, we 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 showed that actually the sensitivity for generalist pathologists in detecting cancer using AI tool uh, approached the level of the subspecialist, right? The GU, you know, subspecialist. And so that's that's really what gets us excited. It, it's about helping to uh, standardize uh, and provide a better course of care for that for that cancer patient, no matter where you live. And that's also really important.
and you are touching on many pain points that I experience every day. People underestimate this. You talked about the access of care, and this is something happens for those people who are listening. Like this is 100% true. I work in downtown Detroit and we get lots of patients from the periphery of Michigan. And they always, we request their pathology slides because the interpretation from their pathologist could be very different from the interpretation of subspecialized pathologists in academic center. And that's yeah. what makes me excited about AI. Anyways, yeah. I will let you do the yeah. talking here. <laughs> <laughs> well, on, on that point too, though, you know, I, I don't know again what the percentages are, but not everybody can afford to move to that specialized care. Exactly. Center, right. And, and in fact, I would I would argue maybe very few people can. And and so yeah. what ends up happening in the community is that community oncologist does the best they can with the information they have. The patient doesn't move on, you know, the, the patient may just get, you know, chemo or radiation or whatever whatever course of treatment they they best think, but you know who knows, right? There, you know, there's been some studies, been a lot of literature out there on this topic. You know, we work very closely with Memorial Sloan Kettering. You know, we've heard that anywhere, but you know, you know, five to ten percent of the time, those you know, MSK pathologists change the diagnosis of the initial, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm, pathology mm -hmm. diagnosis depending on the cancer type. You know, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal about three months ago now by uh, by a hematologist, uh, hemopath in at the University of Miami, and mm -hmm. their their experience had been up to twenty percent of the diagnosis that came in were were not right, or they were missed, or either reclassified. Or, or, you know, so that's, it's a huge range and spectrum, that initial diagnosis, and it makes such a huge impact on care, because it's not enough just to know, okay, there's, there's cancer here, you know, I mean, obviously, you need to know all the TNM, and you need to understand the meditation, you know, the part of the challenge is even it goes after, you know, if you get a resection, you know, lymph node involvement, or prediction of lymph node involvement, and whether this is regional disease or metastatic disease, so Again, you know, we, we touch on this topic, but technology exists today and we don't have to do this the same way it was done in 1910, <laughs> right? Is, 100%. Know, That's how we're doing it. The same way it was done in 1910. I 100% agree. <laughs> it's exactly true. There's this, it's a terrible joke, but the joke is that, you know, if a pathologist from 1900 walked into a modern pathology lab today, what would they say? What would they think? Well, they would say, hey, uh, give me a seat. I'll sit down and start reading cases because it's exactly the same as it yes. was. Yes, <laughs> yes, thank you. So, thank yeah. you. Yes, yeah. Uh, I can't agree more. Okay, so, but yeah. what about beyond what the human eye can see? For those yeah. who are unfamiliar, can you explain what is the concept of patomics and how oh, PGI is leveraging yeah. it in cancer pathology? Yeah, this is where it really gets to me. You know, I think about transformative cancer diagnostics, certainly standardizing, you know, some of these things that may be more subjective, certainly ensuring the objective, you know, is there cancer or not? That's important. But then we really start to get into precision medicine, precision oncology, and all of the very, again, the information that the medical oncologist is really going to need to, to care for that patient the best, to give the right course of treatment. I think the challenge, and I, I'd love your perspective on this for oncologists now is over the past 20 years, the explosion of precision medicine and trying to keep up with, you know, which drug for which disease type in which line with which biomarker, right? It's, it's tough, right? It's in one combination, right? You know, is this with chemos without, you know, you're trying to remember all those things is challenging. And I think 
you know, there was a study done in JAMA, it's, it's about a year and a half old now, and it, and it said about of, of a thousand patients who would be eligible for precision medicine and non-small cell lung cancer, right? So <laughs> either a rat or an EGFR mutation or an ALK mutation or ROS mutation, um, only about 33% of those patients actually get a precision medicine. So this is a thousand patients who are eligible. They have one of those, you know, uh, bio, uh, oncodrivers that, that would be eligible for precision medicine, only about 33% of them. And, and so why is that? And it's sort of the attrition table goes from, well, they never got tested, right? That's a big part of it. Um, mm -hmm. doctor couldn't know, not enough time to test. So they just went ahead and started on a, a chemo regimen, a platinum regimen or whatever. So, and then that was too late. Um, affordability, right. There was, you know, financial toxicity issues. There was, um, you know, payer issues, whatever. So all these, all these things, uh, you know, a, a trite down and only a small portion of the patients that, that could have benefited from a really good precision agent didn't get it. Right. And so those are, those are the things we also want to try to, to fix. And so as, as a great example of that, we said, well, how can you do that anyway? How do you fix that? Well, AI can help this. And, and this is where it starts to, you know, people really need to understand exactly. the power of AI. At the end of the day, what artificial intelligence is really good, especially with what we do in computer vision and even things like GPT-4. In computer vision, it's very, very good at pattern matching, right? Being able to find the very, very subtle patterns in tons of data and a single glass slide, by the way, just so you know, when you digitize it, it's about two gigabytes of data, right? It's a lot of data on a single glass slide in a 40X scan. And so you think about, can AI discern the various nuances of the morphology for a patient who perhaps has an EGFR mutation, as an example, right? EGFR, you know, some, certainly something most non-small cell lung cancer patients should get tested for, because there's other drugs for the various variants that go along with that. But we've, you know, proven and we've published actually on EGFR mutation status that you can find those patients just on the H&E slide on the original diagnosis of non you can call, you can call cancer there. Oh, wow. You can also predict whether that patient with about 90% sensitivity, whether that patient is going to have an EGFR mutation. And, and, and there's, and there's no excess cost to that. I mean, there's, you, you have to run the AI, so there's costs in the cloud, but you're, you're not scraping that tissue. You're not sending it for next generation sequencing. You're not sending it for a large panel. You're not waiting five weeks. At the moment you scan and digitize that slide, the AI can run it in 20 seconds and tell you if there's a, there's a biomarker there. And so Unbelievable. The, the future on this, particularly for oncologists, is why would I wait? I mean, you know, certainly you need to do the concordance and we get all those, but 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 why wait? If, if there's a 90% chance that patient's EFR mutation, why wouldn't I start that patient on, on that therapy now? Uh, if I can't, right? And and I and so I think it really, those are really the interesting things. You can predict a lot of those type of biomarkers. Maybe one last example. Um, we have an algorithm that is clinically available today, and it's mm -hmm. from microsatellite instability for colon uh, cancer patients, right? So, you know, the the mismatch repair genes that that control, you know, um, you know, mis or, or DNA repair issues in colon cancer patients. Interesting guidelines. You should test for these patients, right? You should test for them. A to determine whether there's uh, you know microsatellite instability, but B for any potential hereditary uh, Lynch syndrome you know type things, yeah, right? Yeah. If you think about microsatellite instability today, in order to assess that, it's it's four immunohistochemistry stains. So the, the, you are waiting on that. The pathologist has to assess them, or you can do it with next generation sequencing. You can also do it with PCR. This takes a lot of time. 
again, our, our algorithm about 95% concordant to next generation sequencing or MMR uh, testing to determine whether that patient has microsatellite inst instability in the colon cancer specimen. And, and so you can you know, very quickly understand that using uh, AI as a way to predict biomarker status can A, get the patients quicker to treatment, B, enable cost savings to the system that ultimately you know, might ripple down and, and provide some, some relief to the patient. But this is really where we think the future is. Um, we're excited about you know, where biomarkers go on AI in, in tissue. Mm -hmm. And then maybe one last thing, there's also the ability for AI to predict patterns in, in, the, in, in the tissue that's completely novel. So mm -hmm. is an example mm -hmm. that can you predict whether a patient will respond to an immune checkpoint inhibitor like Keytruda, right? Yeah. Just, just from the slide. You know, today the biomarker that most people use is PDL1 status, which is an immunohistochemistry stain. You also think about tumor mutational burden, which there's a lot of different ways to assess that. Uh, we, we've also published on that that we can predict uh, response to Keytruda better than both of those biomarkers just from the Unbelievable. AI. Right. And, and so there's, you know, of course, this this takes time and, and effort to sort of to sort of assess uh, clinically, but there the AIs can do this. I think to your point, you know, a lot of people just say the same thing. You said, well, that, really? Like, is that, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm surprised. You can do it. They can do it. Now, not, not everything, not every biomarker, not every genomic mutation manifests in the morphology. But this really goes to underlying biology of what we believe is that you know, because there's so much information just in the H&E slide at scanned at 40X that you can pick up patterns, you know, and discern patterns and the AI can do that, that help uh, predict what, what that patient has or what they might respond to. Oh, wow. This is very exciting because like, so, so for people who are listening, like how it, how it works, cancer therapy change a lot. Point, yeah. uh, going back to the first point, it's not only chemotherapy. We have tons, tons of treatments that targets each specific cancer depending on what type of mutation yeah. that cancer have, right? So how it goes, let me give you an example and why this is important. So clinical example, I saw a patient in the hospital who was diagnosed with lung cancer. And if I send this pathology or if I send this sample to the pathologist, the pathologist is going to tell me, is it lung cancer or no? Then mm -hmm. I have to take this sample and send it to a different company. So there is a third party here that's going to tell me, well, what type of receptor, what type of gene mutation this cancer have. Yeah. So depending on that, you can choose a treatment be other than chemotherapy. So, mm -hmm. And I can't do that when the patient is in the hospital because the chemo, uh, sorry, because the test is not covered by insurance when the patient is hospitalized. Right, right. Yeah. So that's another thing. That patient's tests were delayed by a couple of weeks until he left the hospital. Now I'm thinking about this and like, you don't need all the markers. Like if, if the most common markers are there, like if, if the pathologist can tell me this is a lung cancer with EGFR mutation, I can immediately start the chemo authorization or like the treatment yeah. authorization for the specific targets for the EGFR. Like this is mind yeah. blowing. Yeah. Well, and, and you, you get into now probably the most frustrating aspect of our healthcare system, right? Which is, which is the payer, the oh prior odds system, the, uh, you're, you're, just, you're talking about the 14 day rule, which is this very arcane sort of payment problem that, that mm -hmm. Medicare, you know, if you're an inpatient, you know, yeah. So, so it really, <laughs> you know, this is one of the challenges with, 
new technology adoption in healthcare broadly because it's it's you know I, I think about it in three legs of a stool, right? The first leg is that whatever new technology you're introducing, it needs to be better for patient care. You know, I, I think mm -hmm. that's the mm -hmm. that's the bar, no matter what. And and I think, you know, your physician colleagues, you know, always there's there's a there's a there's a range of what they're willing to accept, right? Ranging <laughs> from, I want to see. 10 prospective randomized clinical trials all published in the New, York, New England Journal of Medicine, you know, all the way down to, well, the sales rep showed up and uh, he's good enough. It looks good. You know, that, you know, so I think there's a wide range in what people are sort of willing to accept. The second is, you know, how much does this affect my current way of working, my current workflow today? And for pathologists to move to digital, it is a new way of working. It's, it's not mm -hmm. the way they were trained. It's not the way, especially if you're an older pathologist and you spent 40 years looking down the barrel of a microscope, it's not that it's not what they're trained to do. So it, it definitely changes, you know, changes that. And then of course the last bit is always the economic piece, right? How much does this cost? Who's going to pay for it? Right. How, how, you know, how are payers going to pay? Is this going to reduce my costs overall? Is this going to make me more efficient, et cetera. Right. And, and so I think if you have something that, you know, is very clear, clearly better for the patient, uh, doesn't move workflow too badly, but also maybe makes money for, for the hospital, then you have probably a home run, right? Very quickly, mm -hmm, somebody mm -hmm, will say, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and you move in. But that's very, 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 very few, I think, you know, new technologies. And I think AI is one of those. I mean, I think AI everyone's very excited about, and even for admin burden, right? I don't know if you've messed around with GPT-4, or, or like lot. something like DAX, right? Like, or just, you know, will it, can it, can it, you know, assess, you know, can it take my clinical notes and give a summary or can it, you know, review these, you know, 10 new articles and give me summary, like you can do those things, right? But, you know, in your current clinical workflow, how does it fit? Is it safe? Is it safe for patients? You know, I'm sure there's a governing board thinking about all these things. So my point is, yeah, the, you know, the, the, the health, the, the, the payer always impacts everything in the United States. And, and impacts the ability for hospitals, health systems, doctors to get access to this new technology because it causes issues with the patient paying or the hospital paying or whatever the case may be. Thank you so much for pointing on that because like it's uh, th that's what makes innovation in healthcare different than innovation in any other. Yeah. Because first you have to figure yeah. out who is going to pay for it. And like it's, it's healthcare yeah. is not B2C. Healthcare is B2B right. and you have to figure out the second B. That's it. <laughs> Yeah, and, and the other the other challenge, um, again, just speaking about the United States, is that particularly coming out of COVID, you know, a lot of we talk about community hospitals. Most of those community hospitals are break even or negative margin. You know, mm -hmm, again, mm -hmm, my PhD is in health economics, right? You think hard about how how these hospitals and health systems make money. You know, they don't get the same payer relationships. They don't get paid as much in a lot of ways. A lot of that, you know, people don't realize if you're a small community health system. What you negotiate with the payer and the rates you get paid very different and if you're you know a big upmc or mayo clinic or you know that you have a ton of leverage against the payer and so they, so a lot of those hospitals and health systems again where our technology probably would benefit the most are in those community health systems but they're they're getting pounded by the payer uh they're losing patients to larger urban areas or whatever the case is and they're they're working at negative margins and so they're probably going to be the last area no matter what the technology is to adopt a new technology um you know and so you have to sort of start somewhere i mean i mean what we've found is 
certainly the large academic medical centers, Memorial Sloan Kettering, uh, University of Miami, University of Louisville, you know, Yale. I mean, these sort of places have incentive to bring in new technologies, use them, study them, publish on them, and, and, and have some economic cushion to be able to absorb some of those costs, right? And they, mm -hmm. they, can, they can do that in, in a certain way. They have some margin to do that. Uh, it's not so, you know, again, in the community. And, and I think that's really going to be one of the big challenges here, you know, over the next five to 10 years is how do we really ensure a lot of these new technologies are hitting the places that it'll impact patients the most. Gotcha. Um, how is PGI technology positioned within the healthcare reimbursement model? Like, um, sure. are there any yeah. financial incentives for institutions uh, to adopt the technology? Yeah, maybe maybe just a real quick on. We didn't talk too much. So so we we provide software that allows you know again the pathologist to review these slides digitally, so they can look at that. That's an FDA approved product. And then we have these applications that stack on. So AI application, our first FDA approved and still the only FDA approved uh, product is for prostate. So it, it, it can detect mm -hmm. cancer better. It also does Gleason grading and it automates that. It automates uh, the tumor percentage in the area. We have products for breast cancer, again, for detection, for grading, for mitotic counting. Uh, we got an FDA breakthrough on a product for lymph node and for, you know, oh, that wow. particular dilemma is, you know, as you know, is looking for METs, you know, in the sentinel lymph nodes on, on breast cancer or, or any of the axillary clearance, you know, lymph nodes and, and finding METs. And, and so we have breakthrough status on that. So, so these applications, you know, each one, certainly we're a company, we're a startup company. And so we are a for-profit company and we have investors. And so, you know, we, we are help, we're like technology. And so we, you know, provide a quote to the hospital or the health system and they determine whether they can pay that, pay that amount and move on. However, to, to the point you're asking, how do we work in the health? You know, ultimately I view a world where the payer certainly sees value to their, to their members to have that pathologist use this technology, you know, upfront. Uh, as an example of that, you know, we're hopefully first part of next year, we've been part of a two-year prospective study in the UK to study the health economic benefit of using page prostate um, in, in the NHS. Of course, in these countries like Canada, right, where it's sort of single payer, you, you, you get a bit more innovation. You actually see that the health system is more incented because it's all one payer to understand mm -hmm. how these new technologies are adopted, right? So in the UK, I would argue they're very much ahead of the US um, in adoption of technology because they, they funded it. They said, hey, we need to study it. We're gonna go through this process and we're part of that. And so we expect probably in early 2024, mid 2024, the UK to come out with some you know number that says, hey, here's what we're gonna pay for uh, page prostate, the use of page prostate because we see the value downstream, right? As an example, that Gleason grade eight patient is a Gleason six. And so instead of getting a radical prostatectomy, that patient got nothing, you know, watchful waiting and just, yeah, you know, exactly. So, so I, I, I do, do uh, envision a world where, you know, the use of AI for diagnosis um, gets reimbursed. And so, you know, as a, as a hospital or health system, you can bill a code you know, you, you would pay us, right? You, you know, the hospital health system would pay us as a technology provider and you would bill a code and get reimbursed by the payer because there's value to the patients downstream. Um, we're, we're a few years away <laughs> probably from that, 
Um, but but in the U.S. too, maybe one last one last note here on that is that um, the AMA and and CMS recognize that pathology probably needs to move digital. You know, just like radiology moved digital and and the medical records moved digital and radio you know and cardiology moved digital. And so there are some new codes out. Um, they don't get paid, they don't get covered, but just for the digitization of the glass slide, which is a good step forward. And hopefully the some reimbursement comes from that. So if if the hospitals, you know, any hospital or health system in the US says, okay, hey, I just want to, I just want to digitize all my glass slides, they can do that and they'll get paid for it. And then hopefully there will be AI reimbursement on top that will help also um drive uh, drive adoption so i think yeah ultimately you have people who are really excited about the technology they're willing to pay for it because they see the benefit to patients and and i think the rest of the world will follow when when some payment does come that way oh yeah i i, I think like it's it's beyond the patient like if you think about it what pji yeah. is providing is also providing it's improving physician well-being by mm. It's, it's it's making their work much faster. And I was talking mm -hmm. to this with Dr. Karim Hanna on previous episodes. He, he's a physician with background in clinical informatics. Like any hospital system to retain good number of physicians, they should improve their systems because a recru recruiting a physician on average, it costs thirty thousand dollars. So mm -hmm. it's, it's, it is mm -hmm. much cheaper to improve your system and retain your physicians than have having a yeah. high turnover. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, to, to, to talk about that for a second, I think, and I'm not exactly sure, I'm sure oncology is the same way, but pathology, you know, um, they're predicting, you know, 5,000, a gap of 5,000 pathologists, you know, by, by I want to say the mid-2030s, mid right? So, you know, the, the, the number of cancer diagnosis will double in 20 years, but the problem is oh, yeah. pathologists coming out of residency are, in medical school are, are, are dropping. Every, every 100%. year. And so the, it's interesting because a lot of the customers we work with, particularly academic medical centers, have this issue. They're having a hard time recruiting pathologists. Yes. And in a traditional way for pathologists, it's always been you have to be here, right? And, and wherever we are, you must come to this lab, you must have an office in this lab, and you must sit in this hospital, wherever that lab is. And the radiologists years ago have been untethered from that, right? The radiologists, you know, they're certainly in the town, but maybe not always in the hospital. They can read they cases. They were from Italy. Oh, yeah, sure. Right, exactly. They're, they're sitting around, <laughs> you know, saying what we want. So I think you're starting to see a world, too, um, with pathologists. If you, if you want to attract, number one, you want to attract pathologists to your health system, you have to have a digital AI strategy, I think. Because, number one, you know, they don't want to all come live in the town that you happen to be in. And, and number two, I think the other interesting thing, Ruben, is, is that, you know, the pathologists or the, or the students coming out of residency or certainly out of medical school now, they all grew up with the iPhone, right? They, they're, 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 yes, they're exactly. kids, right? In, in a lot of ways, I'm older than I look. So I, you know, I'm not, but like, you, know, you, you grow up, you know, now, now there's a, there's a, a generation of doctors coming into the workforce who are like, Hey, I use GPT-4 every day. I've got my iPhone. I, I, you know, why would I sit here and stare at glass slides all day? You know, yeah. um, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And so I think too, that's another big tailwind of adoption. You know, we certainly think that will will drive this. But but the, the the physician shortage issue is real, right? I'm sure you guys feel that. It's it's there's just one hundred percent. Yeah. 
one million yeah. percent. Yeah. And so hopefully that will drive, you know, that new technologies are not bad. They're not taking people's jobs. The reality is there's not enough people to fill these jobs, right? So it's that's the challenge that we're trying to solve as well. Oh, yeah. I, I think there will be two group of physicians, physicians who use AI, physicians who don't use AI. So those mm. who don't use AI, they will just be far behind. So those who use AI, they augment their skills, they, they will increase the number of patients they see, and they will also deliver care more efficiently. And it's not yeah. only the number, the, the shortage of number of physicians, I'm very excited about this. It's, it's, we are seeing younger and younger people diagnosed with cancer. And there are tons yeah. of studies out yeah. come from this. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's interesting too, right? I, I don't know. I, I've seen those those trends too, and I'm not exactly sure what's what's driving that. But I think too, that's another big macro trend, right? Is that mm -hmm. consumers, like you know, 10, 15 years ago, and even you know, older generation, you know, my mom, for example, like she goes to the doctor, whatever the doctor says, like that's that's it, like just whatever the doctor said, I'm doing. I think now there's a generation of people, of patients, and to to your point, younger patients who want to be very involved in their care, who, who spent a lot of time on Dr. used to be Dr. Google, right? Now it's Dr. GPT-4, but, but exactly. I, don't know what's better. <laughs> you know, I, don't, I don't know what you think is better. You treat these patients, but you know, they, they want to, they want to be involved. They want to understand the, the ins and outs, and they probably want to ask those hard questions, you know, that we think are worth asking is, Hey, was that diagnosis initially made? Could there have been something wrong? Could there be something in it that wasn't accurate? You know, is it worth getting a second opinion? Was AI used to address it? And I and I think we'll also see patients driving a lot of that uh, adoption too. To your point. Yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. I agree. We you you, you you touch base a bit on the accuracy. Maybe we can expand more on this. Yeah. And so for those who are listening, like what measures do Page AI take to make sure that the results it's providing it's accurate accurate it's yeah. reliable um yeah what are you guys doing yeah and another great question right and, and this also is is two two things i think the first is that you know generally if you think about your audience how much they sort of know about laboratory medicine in general right so i, I i've been spent 20 years in laboratory medicine you know every laboratory test Maybe it's FDA cleared, probably not. It was probably, you know, put in place as a laboratory developed test, validated in the lab. COVID is a great example. You know, all the COVID testing that yes. got done, you know, all of that was LET under emergency use authorization, of course, with the FDA, but those are PCR tests. You have some sort of like, I know what this test, here's a control. Here's what we know the results should be. We run a bunch of samples. We validate that test. Okay, 95%, you know, sensitivity, 90% specificity, you know, positive predictive ag, negative predictive. So there, there are these certain assessments of every laboratory test that every laboratory and every laboratory medical director signs off on. And, and they're not all perfect. There's no such thing as 100% sensitivity, 100% specificity, 100% positive, you know, no false positives, no false negatives, you know, ever, right, in any sort of laboratory test. And so we view AI in very much a similar way. I mean, AI is not perfect. Um, and, and so the clinical validations are important. You know, we, we take a lot of strides. Number one, we're fortunate to have a lot of data from a really great uh, cancer center in New York and Memorial Sloan Kettering. The, the data that we have uh, from Memorial Sloan is actually multi-center because like we talked about earlier, about 30% of these patients actually came from somewhere else. So the slides were produced somewhere else. So we have tons of, of sort of diversity 
Um, it's like 800 institutions in 50 countries. And so there's tons of diversity in actually the data set. So the data set enables us to build AI that's generalizable, that's reproducible. And then when it gets into clinic, it can be validated quickly and, and there you go. However, you know, my opinion, it's not enough, right? I, I think uh, certainly the FDA has a part to play here going forward in ensuring that not only that the AI uh, is performing and doing what it should do in, in very stringent studies, uh, but the hospitals and health systems and doctors like you can trust those results. Because I think that's really what is, is most important. Understand, like GPT, understanding the limitations, right? So at 98, not, you know, for example, our page prostate, 99% sensitive, right? Well, there's still 1% not sensitive, yes, right? There's still, yes, yes. there's still, it, it does give some false positives, right? Not many, but it happens, right? So, so those are the kind of things I think too, people um, need to understand that AI is not perfect, right? Like, but like any method to get to an answer, any tool, it, it has its limitations. GPT-4 has its limitations with, you know, the hallucinations and, you know, you can, you can, you know, manage that in some way. And now they're giving you tools to help manage the hallucinations and things like that. But, Ultimately, that's the way we think about it. So for me, number one, it's about the data set. We, we work very hard to ensure that data set is diverse enough to limit the bias as much as humanly possible, right? Number two, the way we, we create the AI eliminates as much human interaction as possible. It's really about the pattern you're looking for in the, in the data set itself. And, and, and I think we've, we've shown that. I mean, we, again, we have the only FDA approved product. It's been two years. No one's been able to follow. So I, I think that really helps. And I, and I think the future of AI becomes now these really large foundation models, right? So like GPT-4, uh, we're working with Microsoft, we announced a couple of months ago, uh, where we're building the world's largest you know, computer vision pathology oh, model wow. that we think will be, will be pan-cancer, right? So, so basically look across all tumor types, even the rare variants, you know, the things that you don't see very often, the pathologists don't see very often, and help provide information about it. And then also probably provide more information about the biomarkers and things like that. So we've, we've done a preprint um, on, our, on, our, on our foundation model. Um, and so we're excited about that feature. So, you know, again, it's a long-winded answer, but to answer your question, it's, it's sort of, you know, the, it's, on, it's inherent on the companies who are providing this technology, you know, to, say, to, to, to do it right. I, I think there's some companies that aren't, I mean, if I'm being very honest. And, I, and secondly, I think it's up to the clinicians, the hospital's health system to ensure the validations are very strong. Right, they need to really feel comfortable that that tool in the workflow works as expected. And then, lastly, I think it's going to be incumbent on the FDA and regulators to ensure that you know these are these are safe and reliable for for uh, clinical use. No, I completely agree with you. And I just want to emphasize one point that every test it has its limitations. Let's take the most basic test: complete blood counts. I work in an inpatient yeah. and outpatient setting. Inpatients, we test complete blood count, which looks at the hemoglobin, red blood cell, white blood cell, et cetera, every yeah. single day. And we look at the trend. And I have tons, tons of patients who their hemoglobin level was like around 10, 10.5, and then suddenly it's seven. The first thing I do is repeat the test because I know that there is high likelihood that this mm -hmm. might be wrong. And that's where the human uh, supervision is important. Every test, every single test has its own limitations. Yeah, you, you got it, right? And I think this is to maybe address those people who feel like AI will take the jobs of the doctors and they're like, no, right? Because, because ultimately you need to have 
the the knowledge, the experience, just as you said, be able to sort of weave through some of these results and go, oh, well, hang on, now. What, what, what are we looking at, right? What does the trend say? You know, all the things about that patient, right? In that particular case, is there any, any anemia, any jaundice? I mean, is there anything going on with that patient that would make you think that's a real test result? No, right? So let's, re let's repeat exactly. it. Exactly. So there. So I, I think too, you know, we, we, we very much believe the same thing. The AI is a tool, just like any tool you're going to use to get to the right answer or, or get to a better answer based on the information you have. Gotcha. Okay. So for the sake, for the sake of time, I, now I want to, I want to, I want to move. I want to shift gears and I want to really understand more about you. You have a amazing background. You have a PhD. You, you've done a lot. So could you share your journey through the intersection of AI and healthcare? Like what inspired <laughs> you to focus on cancer pathology? How did you transition yeah. from science to entrepreneurship? Like what's the secret sauce? Well, you know, I've, I've spent, you know, so my background very quickly. So I, I spent eight years flying airplanes for the Navy. You know, I, I always wanted to serve. I, I always wanted to be part of the healthcare you know, system. And I just kind of, you know, honestly, be, between you and I, I kind of fell into diagnostics. You know, I, I was fortunate enough to be hired by a very veteran friendly, you know, company and, and started on this journey and, and sort of very early realized like you know, some of the things we've already realized, which is, is this really the best we can do from a diagnostic yes. perspective? And, <laughs> and, and working with new, you know, working with new um, technologies, you know, I was very early on, you know, I was working with a guy, famous oncologist, Dr. Dan Van Hoff, and he had this theory 20 years ago that you could do some genomic profiling and and maybe give some drugs that are off label that 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 uh, you know are are impacted. Um, you know, 20 years ago, oncologists were like, "Get out of here! Like you're crazy! Like no one, I'm not testing for all these IHCs and microarray and all these kind of things." But now, as we talked about, precision medicine is critical. You know, you need to understand whether these patients have these biomarkers. So. You know, really bringing new technologies to to the clinic has been very um, fulfilling for me and rewarding. And what I'm most excited about Paige was, you know, it's kind of this 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 collision between a lot of things as we've talked about for the last 40 minutes. Is is it's diagnosis and diagnostics, but it's it's cancer and the journey that the cancer patient goes through and how the oncologist thinks about their treatment. Um, it's data. Right. It's taking tons of data in a way that now provides better information for for those cancer patients and those doctors who are treating them and its workflow and its and its costs as well. It's health economics. So it's really to me this interesting collision of all of these maybe maybe not separate pillars, but a lot of different pillars in the way healthcare technology is adopted kind of all in one place. And and I think for oncologists who treat these patients every day like you. Um, or the pathologists who, who have to provide information to those oncologists, this is real. This, you know, this transition is happening. And, but at the same time, you have to continue to treat patients and make diagnosis. So it's, it's an interesting time to be, you know, part of this journey. And I think, you know, we're, 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 we're well positioned. We're, it's not there yet. I mean, I, if I had to really guess, it's five or 10 years before you know, every cancer patient, or at least a large majority of cancer patients are getting the benefit of an AI, you know, assisted diagnosis with some AI assisted biomarkers and, and, and treatment predictions, et cetera. But uh, you have to start somewhere, right? And you can't, you can't do it all at once, but you have to start somewhere. I love it. I love it. Yep. So starting bringing any technology into healthcare is not easy. 
What yeah. were the biggest challenges you faced when you were trying to integrate AI with pathology? Yeah, you know, I, I think, you know, the, 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 the biggest challenge is you have to start somewhere, but you have to, you have to start somewhere. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> it, it's, it's, you know, digital, you know, the interesting thing about digital pathology, we didn't come up with it, obviously, I mean, we're in, and, and we're just trying to drive the AI side of it. Um, it's been, a, it's been a change that's been happening over 20 years, you know, and I, and I think the change management piece is way harder than, than people recognize uh, in healthcare. You know, I, I think if you're, you know, if you're a big bank and the, the CEO of that bank says, Hey, you know, we're going to use GPT-4 for our chat bots. And this is how we're going to do customer experience. And we're going to, here's a project manager and he's going to run it. And we've already bought it. And here we go. Right. That can happen. Like that can happen. There can be a, a six month change transition, a huge bank, hundred thousand people can all now figure out how they're going to live in that world. Right. Um, that's not the case in healthcare, right? <laughs> Number one, almost, almost all healthcare is, Almost all healthcare is local, right? I mean, it's what happens at Garmanos or in Detroit, but very different than what they want to do in Miami or in Texas or in California. Yes, that's true. Canada or in Europe, right? Very, 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 very different. And so you have to manage through all the local populations. Everybody feels like their local population, the community serves is very different, right? Mm -hmm. So that's that's the challenge. So so I think it's really the the daunting effort of of where you know where to start. You know, what's the Lamar challenge? Well, where to start? And so we we really started with, you know, again, can we get people to believe in the results of something like page prostate in such a way where um, they'll start to adopt it? I, I, I think if you bring too much too fast into the healthcare system too, you might get a complete no, we're not, we're not using yeah. any of that. Right? Yeah. It's, that's too scary. Uh, you look at liquid biopsy. I, you, right now what's happening with Grail is over the past nine months, most of the oncology community and the general practitioner community have said, hey, well, no, we don't know. Yeah. We don't know what this is. Right. And, and until there's giant studies and, you know, it's really maybe hurt to some degree the adoption of liquid biopsy because too much too fast, I think, in a lot of ways, yes. right, for the health yeah. So, So you have to provide, you know, the clinical evidence has to be there. The FDA approvals, you know, we've gone through that process. Uh, but now it's really, you know, it's just education, you know, education of physicians, podcasts like yours, a great venue to do that. So how, the more the more people we can touch and sort of get the message out that, hey, the technology exists today, it's safe, it's effective, you can use it, uh, and it provides, you know, efficiencies and care and, and, and better care for cancer patients. It's really the message we're trying to deliver. 100% I agree. I think in five years or 10 years, like not using AI should be crime, whether it's oncology, whether it's in pathology, with the amount of data, it's, it's, it's scary. I don't think a human brain can tolerate, can ingest, can digest all this data. Yeah, it's, that's right. It, that's, that, that's really the challenge is, um, you know, at some point that's, you know, you need to use these tools just like anything else. If you're not using yeah. a specific methodology or whatever, uh, you know, that's standard of care. That's really what we need to get to is standard of care. That AI is your friend in, in, in the practice of medicine and in the diagnosis and whatever you're doing. And, and it can be standard of care to help patients uh, on their journey. We're approaching the end. One more question, and I just sure. want to understand what's your, what is your approach when you hire people? What are the things that you look for when you try to build teams? You know, for for sort of your health tech innovators out there, you know, one of the biggest challenges in healthcare and tech is that 
computer engineers, software engineers, AI scientists are not doctors typically, right? They're, they're, they're not <laughs> clinicians, they're not pathologists, and um, and they're not PhDs, and they're not clinical trial experts. And, you know, I mean, so, you know, you, we've seen this over the last 10 years, right? Every big technology company's had a shot at this, you know, Google Health and all, oh, we're just going to solve it. We're the smartest people on earth. We'll just solve this healthcare problem. And then they had to shut down. Because it's like, you know, at the, the end of the day, you know, about 80% of our team are, are technical people. We're a software company at our heart. We're an AI deep science company. So it's it's software engineers, AI engineers, um, you know, product managers, AI scientists, but yet I have to balance that with clinical people who can help guide the product development of those things. And so we, we really look for people. I mean, obviously they have to know their field. They have to know what they're doing. They have to understand the content, but they have to be cross-functional, right? They really have to mm -hmm. be able to understand, okay, I know how to, I know how to build this technology, but can I work with, you know, Dr. David Klimstra, who has got 40 years of pathology experience and he's going to guide me in this thing. Right. So I understand how best to, to position it. Um, and, 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 I, and so I think, you know, those are really soft skills. I think most of the time you have to hire for the hard skills, you have to know how to code and you have to know the AI science and all those kind of things. But the soft skills are so important because if you're not able to um, work cross-functionally in a health tech company, you're not going to survive. Right. The products aren't going to hit the mark. The users, the end of the day, the end users are, are the oncologists, the pathologists, the doctors, the nurses, the, the lab techs, right? These are not technical people necessarily. And so you, you have to be able to translate really good technology to what they need. And, and there's a lot of cross-functional work that happens internally in our product development, et cetera. So that's, I think, the biggest thing we're looking for is, is, is you know, do you have some emotional intelligence? Can you work cross-functionally? Can you, can you manage that? That's really important. Amazing. Well, yeah. thank you so much. I really, really appreciate your time. I don't want to take more of your time. And uh, you, you enlightened me. Like, I was reading a lot about PGI, but, like, the things that you mentioned today, like, didn't cross my mind. And I'm very excited to see, uh, hopefully, yeah. PGI is implemented in my institution as well. Very good. No, I appreciate the time. And, uh, again, the more we can sort of get this message out, the better. So appreciate the invitation. Thank you so much.